episode 279. How did health systems get addicted to the inflated prices they charge employers and some patients? Today, I speak with Peter Hayes, who is president and CEO over at the Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. Let me explicitly state an implicit theme that's been running through a bunch of the latest Relentless Health Value podcasts talking about if and how the COVID-19 pandemic could possibly serve as a flashpoint in the healthcare industry. A flashpoint where egregious and self-interested financial pursuits take such a toll that politicians notice. Why do these legislators notice? Because the patients, also known as voters, the ones that we all serve, begin to break under the weight of a system that inappropriately enriches some of its purveyors. Today, I speak with Peter Hayes, who is president and CEO at the Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine and a national presence in healthcare strategy, innovation, and frequent keynote speaker. One thing among many that Peter said during our conversation struck me. He said it will take a village to fix what ails the healthcare system in this country. There's just too many interdependencies. Take, for example, some of the biggest, most powerful health systems in this country. Most are, by almost every account, pretty darn inefficient in how they purchase supplies, how they pay their CEO millions of dollars, and how they put a waterfall in the lobby and don't pay any taxes. Look, here's my point, and it's both an uncomfortable time and a great time to make it. I want the doctors and the nurses and others who actually provide care to be heroes and fairly compensated for their hard and dangerous work. But that should not, and maybe even cannot, happen within the context of a larger system that is anything but fair to patients. So this whole upcoming conversation that I have with Peter pertains to the business decisions that many huge health systems are making and have made. It does not pertain to the scrubs, for the most part, who are doing the best they can and should be exalted. Except to urge you guys to organize, please. But why should health systems change their often wildly inflated and secretive billing practices if employers just pay whatever the bill is, no fuss, no muss? Short answer, they won't. It's not like no one in the health system noticed that the CEO is getting paid like 10x what the average worker makes. It's not like no one noticed what has been sacrificed in patient care or infection control or technology to spring for that kind of green. Health systems operate the way they operate because someone wants them to operate that way. Follow the money and you can figure out who. So it's going to be up to someone else in the village to make it untenable for them to continue to do these things. It's going to be up to another party to slow that roll. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Peter Hayes, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. Glad to be here. Look forward to the conversation. Here's something that you have said, Peter. I'm going to quote your LinkedIn Uh post. I'm going to paraphrase it, actually. You've said that hospitals are addicted to upcharging commercial payers with margins plus 57%. So plus 57% is, is a big number. And 
you know, one of the reasons that they're doing this is to cover waste and inefficiencies that are inherent in their system. Just to make one thing clear before I ask you to dig into that a little bit, when we say commercial payers, effectively who we're talking about here are employers because employers are the ones who are paying the commercial payers to pay the hospitals. So the employers are actually spotting the 57% margin that hospitals are taking in. It's just sort of how we've evolved. I mean, and and the real issue becomes about 50% of all the payments to health facilities, hospitals, health systems at this point really come from the public pay. They really come from Medicaid and or in Medicare. And basically, Medicare is set up so it's supposed to reimburse hospitals their cost based on cost reports they need to produce. So there really isn't a lot of margin for the health systems on the public pay. So the the system we've evolved to is the commercial pay. And I'd be a little broader definition of commercial being it is mostly business, but it's also all of us are all Americans that have sort of individual health policies, too. And what ends up? So if if Medicare is a dollar of cost, that's what hospitals and health systems will get reimbursed. But the commercial payers, everybody else, either private insurance and or employer based insurance on average in this country is paying about three times that. So if it costs a dollar to deliver services, the commercial payers are actually paying $3 for that same service. Effectively, what you're saying is the way that Medicare, Medicaid pricing works, public pay, there's no profit margin built in. No. So the profit of a hospital has to come from commercial payers. Yes. Yes. And again, and and, and there's, there's two factors there. One is their Medicare reimbursement rates are suppo- are based on the cost of what they consider to be well-run, efficient hospitals. To the extent that they're not, then that just means they further need to cost shift that difference. Can you give some examples of things that health systems are spending money on that might be deemed inefficient? When hospitals are building these places that look like you know the Four Seasons resorts, they have waterfalls in the lobby. That's an example. Second example of some of the highest paid executives, some of our highest paid executives in Maine, CEOs, are the hospital CEOs. So a lot of the hospitals have very top-heavy sort of executive and administrative staffs. I mean, a good example in our community, there was a hospital here, the dominant hospital, that, that put on about a $560 million addition to their facility, which didn't add any new operating rooms or didn't add any new beds. Those are some examples of, of that. The, the other places that, are, that really depends is the whole supply chain. What's the supply chain relative to hospital charges that increases them? A good example will be, and actually some surgeons are actually starting to speak out. You know, there was there was a good example of a, a surgeon that I went to, orthopedic surgeon that came to a conference. He took out of his pocket some screws that he was using for procedures. And he was able to show and share that those screws, which were titanium or stainless steel, whatever, literally were, it, it cost to manufacture pennies on the dollar. And he actually showed invoices that the hospital actually invoiced for it that were several thousand dollars per screw. And that's pretty typical for for many things. So why have all these examples that you just went through happened? You know, like, how did we 
evolve this way. And it's happened because the way the hospitals get to that margin, most businesses, I was in the supermarket business, you, you first start at your top line revenue. What do you think customers will spend in your store? You get your top line revenue, you look at your expenses, and then you get to a bottom line and you can't adjust the top line revenue. So you end up having to go back and find cost efficiencies. The CFO of the hospital said hospitals are different. They start with what they want on the bottom line. Then they add back their cost. Then that gives them their revenue number they need to generate. And all they do in commercial pay, all of the health plans, they agree to contract with hospitals as a discount off of what's called the master charge list. So all these hospitals do, once they figure out the amount of revenue they need, they just increase their price list, which, oh, by the way, is secret. Nobody knows what that price list is. You can't see it. You can't access it. Health plans don't see it. All they know is they're getting a 5% discount off the master charge list. Let's go back. Let's let's talk about Medicare for a sec. So you, sure. you've said that Medicare reimburses what Medicare believes should be the true costs of, of the service. Fair price for an officially run facility, yes. There's a lot of hospitals that cry all kinds of things, but one of them is that they're losing money on Medicare, that Medicare is not reimbursing sufficiently. They claim they're doing too much charity care. From what I'm understanding you saying is maybe, but more than likely it could be that they're inefficient or running the place like they're fat cats, as opposed to figuring out what the fair price is and then trying to be efficiently work into that price. Did I get that right? Yeah, it's, it's actually even more concerning that because actually if, if you're a business, a manufacturer, you actually do cost accounting, which is part of my background. I mean, you, you actually know to the fraction of a penny how much every supply you use to manufacture your product is and you know how much it costs you to produce a widget of whatever that may be. Hospitals don't use cost accounting. They really don't know. Most hospitals don't even know what their real true cost of care of delivering a particular service like an MRI or whatever it might be. All they know is in aggregate, they need X amount of revenue and they just come up with that master charge list, as I suggested. So what they do is they, they may have created these master charge lists years ago with no relationship to what it really cost. And then as they get to that top line, if they need another 5%, they just adjust all the prices 5%. Hospitals have gotten very used to a model where they can charge whatever they want to pay their chief executive officers handsomely, millions of dollars. But I think the point that we're making here is this doesn't work with Medicare. So who winds up picking up the slack, so to speak? Like who winds up getting charged whatever it is the hospital wants to charge are employers or patients? And we're seeing that, you know, like how much did hospital charges go up? for employers and, and patients in the past like nine years, it's like 58% or something. It's like way over. Yeah, it's been pretty significant. Purchases are paying multiples of, of what underlying inflation is. I mean, there's lots of other reasons for that, but that's that's in the ballpark of what you just suggested. You're suggesting also that th this is the case. It's not like, you know, they're providing more charity care or something like that. There's a system which maybe even rewards inefficiency. And actually, you know, that's a whole nother can of worms you've sort of opened that actually is starting to get a, a lot of attention. A lot of the health systems are granted, you know, they're tax exempt and they were granted the tax being tax exempt because of the argument that they were being forced to deliver a lot of charity care in their communities. 
And it's not insignificant because then the nonprofit hospitals are tax exempt from income taxes for state and national. They also are exempt from real estate taxes. So for a lot of communities in our community, the the local health system that that is nonprofit has about $400 million of office buildings, which is about $7 million in tax revenue that the local town loses. What's happened over time, actually, is with Certainly one of the successes of Obamacare was that we got many more, millions more of Americans covered. So actually the charity care has gone down over time because we have more and more that are on insurance. People have estimated that the amount taxpayers are subsidizing the nonprofit hospitals is about $30 billion a year across the country. As we are contemplating the COVID-19 pandemic, as we all know, and I'm sure you can state some stats here, Peter, the number of employers, the number of employees employed by employers already has declined precipitously. So if we're talking about cost shifting and now we're cost shifting onto these employers and employees, if you've got a smaller number of employers and employees, then obviously the amount of cost shift that any individual is going to bear starts to balloon. What are you seeing Right now, hospitals and providers are really struggling. They're estimating 25 to 40 million Americans are going to lose employer-sponsored care, which means that there's just going to be fewer that are being covered by those that are subsidizing hospitals. So there's been estimates, and no one really knows, and, and the proof will be in the pudding, so to speak. But they're cautioning that some employers may be facing 20 to 40% premium increases next year, which is only going to exasperate the problem. I mean, there'll be a lot of employers, even if they remain in business and keep their doors open, they're probably going to be forced to reduce coverages yet again. So it's almost a death spiral of sort of the commercial marketplace. I mean, this could be the perfect storm where we reach this tipping point where folks are going to really push Medicare for all like you know, provisions. So that's going to be interesting to watch. The healthcare is already the second biggest line item on any given employer's cost balance sheet. You know, you can't just decide that you're going to almost double that and think right. that um, that business is still going to remain solvent in any way. You know, that's a deal breaker right there. Yeah, yeah. Alex Young from Ernst & Young said, if anybody thinks that ultimately employer costs are going to go down as a result of this, they don't know how the healthcare system works. <clears throat> if you have a situation where an industry is, using your words, addicted to certain level of revenue and the prices they charge are completely irrelevant, then if you cut the volume in half, then prices go up double. It's going to be a double hit next year because all the elective procedures, a lot of the facilities were at capacity. So those elective procedures that weren't done, they're going to be scheduled, will bleed over into next year, which will put cost pressures on. And then the health systems will try to recover whatever revenue they've lost this year by going back to that, what we talked about at the top of just, you know, increasing their charge master. So it's almost the perfect storm where employers are going to be really facing some tough choices come this come next renewal cycle. And most normal businesses, you can't just double your prices. You know, like you you sort of have to renegotiate a contract. <laughs> How can a hospital just do that to an employer? Just using the employer example, you know, like doesn't a typical employer have a commercial payer who is negotiating with the hospital and their contract prohibits a price increase of that magnitude? <laughs> 
Healthcare, if nothing else I've learned, is just incredibly complex. And anything, any rational approach that you think should apply just seems to be not rational at all. I mean, it's a really strange dichotomy where, I mean, you've got health plans. I mean, they've got two problems. They are the ones that are actually negotiating the contracts with hospitals. But in our marketplace, for instance, and this is happening all over the country, and this is one of the downsides of Obamacare, where, you know, they really promoted that allowing these health systems to integrate, merge, and consolidate. And so in many markets, you have virtual monopolies now. In the state of Maine, we have 80% of all physicians are owned by health systems, and there's basically three dominant health systems. When you get that kind of market cut, what happens to the health plants is they try to go and negotiate with the hospital and the hospital will say, well, gee, if you're not willing to pay these rates, we're not going to be in your network. And if you're the Blues or you're Aetna or Cigna, you pretty much need every provider in your network to compete. So the health plan's perspective is they're not as interested in what the total Net cost is they just want to make sure that they can negotiate maybe a percent better than their competitors with the health systems. So the health systems really have in many marketplaces, and, and, it's, and it's actually been proven that where there's more competition in the marketplace, the unit costs are lower. When there's little competition, what it's shown is that actually cost increased by about 22 percent. You know, that's why we regulate large monopolies in the past. The plot thickens because obviously commercial payers are getting paid to offer a service and there's other stakeholders that are involved in the process. The commercial payer in a market where there's a monopoly, and if they go to an employer and say, oh, by the way, the big hospital down the street isn't in network, historically, at least, that employer has not gone with that carrier. I mean, that's been a problem, which is why having you know, the major providers in an area, that's been a, a major negotiating point that a consolidated provider can can use with a negotiation with a commercial payer. But if we talk about how much they're getting paid to do those negotiations on the behalf of the employer and then other other stakeholders that are involved in the process, how much does that enhance the cost any given employer is going to pay? There's one thing that really comes to play in all of healthcare is just, you know, Jerry Maguire movie with Tom Cruise, you know, follow the money. There are just so many perverse incentives. So what happens a lot of times these health plans now that because there's a medical loss ratio, the, the more premium they have, the more premium dollars they take in, they get to keep to the bottom line 15% of that. So they have every incentive from their perspective that reducing healthcare premiums and other things actually reduces their income. So they're not particularly motivated to reduce premiums. Similarly, the brokers, and, and in many cases, brokers are getting about 10, between overrides and other things, they get about 10% of the total Rx and medical premium that they write. So for brokers that are supposed to be representing the larger purchasers, they have some perverse incentives. If, if they actually do things that dramatically reduce Rx costs, and there's there's evidence that suggests Rx costs can be reduced by about 50%. Five zero. Five zero, 50%. But if they do that, they also then lose 50% of their commission. So there's there's lots of things that sort of work against People that are actually, that could do things to dramatically lower costs, actually lowering costs. Let's just say I'm an employer here and I'm picking up what you're putting down. <laughs> and I'm saying to myself, wow, I got to get ready here because 
I see that there is an incentive of the whole industry to increase my medical charges, something fierce coming up next renewal season. Mm -hmm. Is a solution to ensure that my employees aren't going to these hospitals that I am not sure how much I'm going to get raked over the coals? Yeah, I mean, I think it's two issues. And one is in the listenership that's here, I'd encourage them to go out to, there's a, a nonprofit entity called LeapFrog. LeapFrog actually goes out and measures the patient safety in all the hospitals in the country. And they actually give them a letter grade. And the first piece of your answer to your question is, if you go to a hospital that has a patient safety grade of A or B, there's something like an 88% chance, less chance of having a mortality or fatality. So which hospital door you enter has a huge impact on sort of costs only from a, if you have a complication in a hospital, that will cost 40% more than if you don't have a complication. We actually had one hospital CFO said, well, gee, you know, preventable medical errors and infections. If we do something to change that, we lose 30% of our revenue. Why would we do that? The first thing employers can do is really think about where you send your patients to get care. To answer sort of the third part of your question, we, one of our members is the state of Maine, their employees, we've put in place a center of excellence program with a company called Carum Health. And that completely changes the equation now. What they do is they go out and they actually have a list price. So if you go and get a knee, it's just like buying a car. There's a list price for what the health facility is gonna get. So the patient knows and the purchaser knows. It's also warranty on the back end. It's actually guaranteed that if there's actually a complication, if it didn't go well. In most cases, in our case, when I was a director of benefits of a supermarket, we had a, a hip replacement that cost us a million dollars. It failed three times. This is actually, it's warranty. So you're getting bundled prices from Karen. Got it. But before we did that, and we took a look at the state of Maine, they have people all over the state, the variation that they paid for knee replacements that occurred in one year, one calendar year, was over 650%. They had some knee replacements that cost them 25,000. They had some knee replacements that cost them 200,000. They even had that type of variation within the same hospital. So certainly things like leapfrog, sending people to where they're gonna get high quality care more cost effectively. Certainly looking at pivoting to centers of excellence where you can get bundled payments, guaranteed pricing, and more importantly on the care program, you know, there's estimates that 30 or 40% of all medical services delivered in this country add little to no clinical benefit. But Karim is finding that for hips and knee replacements, they're finding, and it's just like Boeing and some others that have done this Walmart, 23% of the time when the local orthopedic says you need to have a hip or knee replaced, it doesn't need to be replaced and shouldn't be replaced. On spinal procedures, it's 50% of the time. There are things like that that employers not only can, can push on the cost continuum, but more importantly, they can actually get higher quality, better care for their patients. In the case of a bundled payment program, the employer is creating their own network, you know, not going through the local commercial payer, but they're saying, whenever one of my employees needs a knee replacement, they're not just going to go down the street. Like we have a, a network of high quality providers that we have negotiated with those providers what this knee replacement, hip replacement is going to cost. And we've also put in place some checks and balances to ensure that they actually need it. Therefore, that whole price escalation cascade that we talked about earlier is not going to happen in this case. Right, right. And better yet, the other thing it does for the patient is most people are now have very high deductibles. 
These programs also say you, the patient, if you go, it's 100% paid. The employer will pay all your care, no no co-pays, no deductibles. They'll pay for travel. They'll pay for a significant other to go with you. So there's a real advantage to the patient too. They get top-notch care, some of the best care in the country, and they have no out-of-pocket costs. And that reduces also the negotiating power that that consolidated entity would have down the street. Because, you know, if these, let's just call them what they are, you know, highly profitable (laughs) musculoskeletal elective surgeries don't happen in that hospital down the street and all the employers are not sending hips and knees there any longer, you know, like that's something that that hospital might notice. A real live example of it. I mean, I I did this when I 10 years ago when we had that hip that cost us a lot of money. I asked our hospitals in Maine if they would look at a bundle or if they'd look at doing things differently. They said no. I spent several weeks sort of in Europe and ended up spending a couple of weeks in Singapore. We came back and actually we put a benefit design at that point in time. A hip replacement, knee replacement was seventy five hundred thousand in Maine. Went to Singapore and they would do a hip knee replacement for $10,000, guarantee it for a year. We put a benefit design in place saying, you know, if you want to go, we'll pay. I got a call, picked up in the Wall Street Journal. I got a call the next day from a hospital in Maine and saying, we want to play. We'll contract on a bundle. We'll do this. So not only does it help the patient, but when you asked about what can some purchasers do when the state of Maine did it here, Hospitals that originally said they weren't interested in participating now have come back to the table. And we actually have some hospitals in Maine that are participating. They're willing to pivot off of that fee-for-service sort of secret charge list to actually bundle payments. So it it also moves the whole marketplace. So we've got two things that we've discussed thus far. Number one, we've got make sure that employees have access to hospitals that have a really good score. And I actually did a, a podcast with Dr. Carl Billamoria, which is called Rate the Raiders. And he kind of evaluates all the different rating scales, yeah, yeah. which are yeah. out there. So, you know, provide some maybe transparent quality information relative to the hospitals and try to steer employees to hospitals that have uh, good scores. That's number one. Number two is try to do some direct contracting and bundling, especially for high volume type services where, you know, as you just said, you could get charged $27,000 for a knee replacement or you could get charged $127,000 for a knee replacement. And with no, I mean, it's not like the expensive one was better. One of the things that is eminently visible is how many lobbyists the status quo, you know, hospitals have in Washington that all of the the health plans have in, in, in Washington. And by health plans, I mean the commercial insurers. It almost sounds like there's a battleground that's just like your average employer who sometimes the hospital is the biggest employer in in any given area. So, you know, like they have a lot of sway over what happens in that in that area. So it's almost like the employers that aren't in the healthcare industry versus the healthcare industry. How does that play out in uh, Congress, state or federal? Think about it. I mean, just most recently, a headline is the American Hospital Association is suing the Trump administration because the Trump administration is just trying to get hospitals to be somewhat transparent about pricing. And think about it. I mean, if you're a manufacturer of a product, and so, you know, I've heard at one point General Motors use the analogy that healthcare at one point in time, their healthcare spend for their employees was much as much as all the steel they used in their vehicles. And you think about when GM buys steel, they know to the fraction of the penny how much they're paying for each, you know, however you measure the volume of steel you buy. They have no idea with healthcare. To me, just just imagine the consumer rights when you and I buy a vehicle or you and I buy a house. 
you know, we signed stacks of documents that disclose the total payment, disclose the price. You and I can walk into any hospital today and, and walk out with a, a several hundred thousand dollar bill and nobody showed us a price list. No one's consulted with us. The fact that the lobbyists can block even just basic consumer rights to know what the price of something is before you purchase speaks to, to the power. Someone had said in the, in the farm industry, there are four lobbyists hired by farmer for every single legislator that's in D.C. So, you know, a four to one ratio, they're very effective at getting their story out. Back to the employer again. I'm an employer. I definitely want to do the bundle thing. And I definitely want to steer employees to, you know, high quality organizations like that sounds immediately feasible and not even super tough if you have some kind of, you know, good communication. What else can I be doing? Do I hook up with other, you know, like you're the president and CEO of the Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine? Is there strength in numbers perhaps? Yeah. A mantra that we use is that healthcare is not the core competency of most businesses. I mean, they're they're busy Whatever it is they're doing, that's their core business. Healthcare, they they think, is just so complex. They're relying on their health plans and brokers to solve a forum that's not really working, as we discussed. Across the country, almost every state has an entity like like us that, that, that is really trying to coalesce the purchaser voice. There's a national alliance that's in D.C. that's doing that. I think that is the route. We were just talking about the political landscape this last fall. A bunch of us gathered in D.C. and we actually went around to the legislator's office and there were just three issues. It was a Cadillac tax, it was transparency in PBMs and surprise medical billing. We were from all over the country. We went to the legislators and the legislators were just floored. They said, all of you from businesses, from municipalities to state government to businesses across the country agree these are three things we should do. And they were blown away. I mean, it was really amazing. And there was movement. So there is power. But in the past, we just haven't done a good job of, of organizing the purchaser's voice. And, you know, sort of the mantra, you know, we're trying to say is we've been happy buying whatever the health systems and whatever the health plans want to sell us. It's time that we start, be, instead of being market takers, that we start to be market makers. We start to say, just like when I go back to GM and steel, you know, any any manufacturer has specifications. They'll go to a supplier and say, this is what I want to buy. This is the price point I want to buy it at. That's what we need to start doing in healthcare. This is what we want to buy. This is what we think is a fair price. And there's some safety in numbers that, you know, the problem now, what are the health plans and health systems will say is you talk to one employer, you've talked to one employer, they can't agree on anything. We need to find a way to agree on what it is that's important to us and go after it. Let me go back to the statement that you just made about being a market maker as opposed to a market taker. Is there anything that I can do locally as an employer? Forget about legislation for a moment. Is there anything that I can do at the local level by myself or with my local purchaser organization? Like, let's just say everybody organizes up, at least at the local level. Like, what can we do right now? Do we have meetings with all the local hospitals that say, you know, eyes on? <laughs> I think there's lots of things. I mean, you know, examples that we're doing is we've put in place a shopping tool that, you know, if you need good examples, Rumicade, if you need a Rumicade infusion, it's 15000 in our local hospitals, 12 to 15. It's 4000 in a physician's office. We're paying people if, if they go and move their care from the health facility to the physician's office. We're paying them $500 every time they go. So there's tools like that that can start to engage consumers. We put in the center of excellence program we talked about, which we actually have started to get you know, hospitals to pivot. 
You can directly contract, you know, some purchasers, especially if you're a large employer in a community, you can go to your hospital and try to directly contract for certain things, whether it's around diabetes. So there are things that you can do. It it doesn't have to be magical. I think there's baby steps, but we have found that if the health plans and health systems, if a couple employers get together and they agree on something, it really gets their attention and they really want to be at the table and it'll really change the dialogue. So I'd encourage that. I'd encourage to try to find brokers in the marketplace that are really looking to do the right things to really try to find a way to improve care. There are local solutions. You just need some leadership to make it happen. So it sounds like, you know, one thing that almost anyone can do in any area is, you know, get together with other employers in the area until you've got some kind of critical mass that is impressive. And then, you know, march over there and ask for a meeting. Who would I ask for a meeting with? Is it like the board? Is it the CEO? Is it the CFO? Like, who do I meet with? It's going to depend on whether it's the local hospital or the bigger health systems. Usually they have sort of a marketing team. That's probably where you'd go. But most states have some form of purchasing alliance, alliance, coalition. Some states have chambers that are pretty engaged. Or, you know, one thing that we found, depending on where you are on the curve, where we try to engage our providers first in our marketplace is around quality, is really trying to understand if you've got, I mean, I use a great example. In our state, when we started, when I mentioned LeapFrog, we had some of the most unsafe hospitals in the country. Our infection rates were very high. We as employers came together, purchasers, and created a benefit design that said to hospitals, we're not going to send patients or we're going we're to waive co-pays and deductibles to folks that go to the safer hospitals that are rated A or B. And literally, in a matter of about five years, Maine went from having the most unsafe hospitals in the country to having some of the safest. It's really hard for the health systems to argue that they're not interested in quality and safety. And there's lots of evidence that shows if you improve quality and safety, costs go down. So it depends where you're starting from in these marketplaces. I would think that, and I'm not talking about a broker who is taking commissions on the back end from a commercial plan that has every vested interest to see costs go up. So that's not the kind of broker I'm talking about. But there's a whole other kind of broker who has transparent fees. You know, it's a fee-based broker who signs agreements that are very ethical, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. As an employer, they might be able to guide me toward some of these, you know, through some of these options and choices that you've brought up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think there's 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 a growing trend where there's consultants and brokers that are starting to say in full disclosure to their clients are saying, we're not going to take any commissions. We're not going to take any back door revenues, we're going to negotiate with you directly what our value proposition is, and there'll be a contract. And that's how we get paid. Frankly, the other big pivot point that's come in, we have our chair of a board does a lot of ERISA work. Increasingly, a lot of brokers and a lot of HR directors and decision makers have a fiduciary responsibility. And if dollars are not being spent that are in direct benefit of their populations that are in the health plans, they have a fiduciary responsibility, and that is starting to get real traction in the marketplace. Employers need to do much more due diligence about who are they hiring, what are the revenue flows, how many of the dollars actually going to the plan participants. So basically, if I'm a plan sponsor, like I'm an employer, and it comes to light that you know 50% of the dollars that I'm, say, I'm, I'm spending are getting frittered away on middle yeah. people who aren't necessarily adding value, that puts me at legal jeopardy. Yes, Exactly. Yep. Two resources that an employer can go to for transparent brokers, one of them being the Health Rosetta and then the other one Health being Rosetta, yeah. Yeah, um, Validation Institute. So those might be good places to start to, to try to find a broker that is actually 
a servant of the employer as opposed to making more money from other entities, in which case, you know, they're not working for the employer, they're working for somebody else. Yes. Yep. Did I forget to ask you anything, Peter? I guess the only thing I missed, I mean, and this really is kind of an appeal. We are at this critical juncture where unless we as purchasers can start to take back the market and try to use the same practices we use for every other business line item we manage, unless we get engaged, I really think we're at this tipping point that that unless it's unsustainable where we are, if we don't do something to have the market work, it's going to be done to us. And that's not going to necessarily be in the best interest of health systems or providers or plan sponsors. I think this is really a tipping point that either we can, it takes a village, either we all come together and figure out how do we do the right things? How do we take out the 30 or 40% of, of spend that doesn't add any value? Even some of the corporations are beginning to think this is just an unmanageable situation. There's nothing they can do. Medicare for all is is the best solution. If you don't think that, then, then I think it really behooves to spend some time trying to figure out how to do some of the things we just talked about today. If I'm a health system executive, then I'm listening to this. You can't say to any given employer, oh, by the way, th- your healthcare costs are going to go up 40%. Like that is just an untenable. It, it's like an ask that no one can accept. What's going to wind up happening is Medicare for all, in which case everybody's paying 1x Medicare, not right. one right. 1.5 or 2 If we think about this as a long-term model, the safest, less risky way to go is to try to attenuate the the pricing right now. And, and, and frankly, some of your more progressive hospital executives, these conversations are already happening in their boardrooms. They know they got to pivot. They're just worried about how quickly they can change the direction of the ship. I mean, some of them have, they've made longer term investment decisions that they relied on this model that they're addicted to to pay for. Converting quickly is going to be painful. So they want ramp. They want some time. Yeah, as in anything in healthcare, you can't just like do it on Tuesday. So (laughs) you would have to probably start now. So if someone's interested in learning more about what you're up to, Peter, at the Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine, where do they go for more info? Yeah, just look us up on Google, Healthcare Purchaser Alliance of Maine. We've got a, you know, we've got a website. I would highly recommend following Peter on LinkedIn. (laughs) Thank you. Peter Hayes, thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Well, thank you for taking the time to have the conversation. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.